Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's scripture is from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. After Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias, a large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover... The festival of the Jews was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about five thousand in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who has to come into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in this moment of silent reflection, the reality is it's hard for us to still our hearts because we are not conditioned for it. We have stresses and pressures pushing on us from outside. We have that nagging inner critic voice whispering or sometimes shouting at us from within. We have regrets of the past and fear of the future. The only place that's really hard to be is right here, right now. Help us to be here and experience your presence. For some of us, this moment is so difficult and so heavy because of our cares and our concerns and our confusion. We cannot see the future. And so it's hard to relax right now. Others of us, things are going really well. Maybe with our success or our affluence or just our access to entertainment, an endless array, a variety of distraction, we have numbed ourselves out from existence. But however we find ourselves right now, help us to see that we have 
more in common than we realize. On one hand, each of us, created in your image and likeness, beautiful and beloved. And at the same time, each of us wanders and gets lost to the things we do to ourselves and the things that have been done to us. Fractured, broken. Help us to realize that you see us in all our beauty and all our brokenness, all our complexity and all our contradictions, and your response is to give yourself to us in the sacrificial love of your son, Jesus Christ. You love us more than we even love ourselves. So help us to do the hardest thing of all, to actually trust that, to receive your love, to believe it. And so we ask now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed that we'd be awakened to your grace and we'd be sent out to be your very outposts of resurrection love wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and your glory. Amen. Please be seated. So this was a big week in the Nalt family because my son Benjamin turned 14 on Friday. The big 14. Oldest of three boys. I love that he's the trendsetter and kind of the icebreaker foraging his way, forging and foraging his way through life. And uh, so on Friday, I picked Benjamin and a bunch of his buddies up from their middle school, and a bunch of eighth graders in the old Nalt family minivan, and we went to the new Spider-Man at the movie theater. As we were going, I had Benjamin during, during lunch text me all of his friends' candy orders and soda orders, just so we'd have it all set. You know, this is what it's like to have an Enneagram 7 father. We get to the theater, we have the whole thing to ourselves, and so it was just food fest for these boys and the dad all the, what candy do you want? What popcorn would you like? What soda do you want? Now, here's the thing. I joined in on all that. It was, it was great. At least it started great. We, uh, you know, I had just finished the 30 days of the whole 30 where there's no added sugar to anything. And so, you know, when you go from no added sugar to anything for a month and then Sour Patch Kids, the snacks and the sugar and the candy came right back and greeted me like a long lost friend. And then stabbed me in the back like Brutus to Caesar, you know, because I was hungry and I fed myself and it did not help. Today we see this passage of a bunch of hungry people. And oftentimes scripture comes and asks you these really big questions. Do you recognize the hunger in your life? But then it'll go even further. So have you considered the hunger underneath the hunger? And, and even more, how are you feeding that hunger? the pursuits that you have, the goals that you strive for, what you feed your soul with, is it actually nourishing? Or does it just fill your stomach for a second and then leave you with a sugar hangover? In other words, what are you building your life on? And is it noble enough, is it strong enough to actually sustain you through the beauty and tragedy of this life? That's what this passage comes and asks you and me today. So let's just consider in the time we have, from three angles, that Jesus provides the bread, the provision. Jesus is the bread, the personal God. And Jesus sends us out to be bread for a hungry world, the propulsion, okay? Jesus provides the bread, Jesus is the bread, Jesus sends us out to be bread for a hungry world. First, Jesus provides the bread. And our passage opens with a crowd, it says, of 5,000 people. By the way, I, I try to point out to you whenever these things arise in the scripture, 
the genre that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, claim to be. They don't claim to be mythology or over-exaggerated hyperbole or just some sort of a, um, a metaphor. You know, when, when it says that Jesus fed the 5,000, what it really means is his great teaching about sharing inspired them to share the bread they had with each other. And that's, so there's not actually a supernatural miracle that took place. There's just this kind of overarching good teaching that led to better behavior. And the thing is, the Gospels don't allow you and me to make that interpretation. They just don't. They don't allow you and me to minimize them or to take away their strength or their power. They claim these things actually happened. Now, it's up to you and me to do the hard work, investigate it, search it, scrutinize it, and see if they really did or not. But they claim that these things actually happened. And part of the clues that you get in the Gospel of John is he starts naming names and counting numbers. There's a place later after Jesus' resurrection where there was this miraculous catch of fish, and John's like, there were such and such many fish in the boat. It's like, who's counting fish? He goes, I want you to know there were actually fish in the boat. These things actually happened. Here he says there were 5,000 people, and when they were done, there were 12 baskets of fish. These are not the, this is not the language that the Iliad uses. This is not the language that Greek mythology or Roman mythology uses. He's saying these things are actually, they happened and you can trust them. Now, 5,000 people, it says here, we have this story recorded in other Gospels as well, and it often says 5,000 men. And that's just the way, unfortunately, I don't like it, you don't like it. That's just how they did the census back then. If you had a Y chromosome, you got counted, and if you didn't, you didn't. I'm sorry. It's not right. But the point is, it was not just 5,000 people. It was 5,000 men plus their wives and kids. And in the ancient Near Eastern society, you can imagine each husband had at least one wife and one kid. This is at least 15,000 people. And they've followed Jesus into the wilderness because they saw the signs. They saw him healing the sick, teaching in a way they've never been taught before. They came to him hungry. And this physical hunger is a metaphor and a picture of a deeper hunger. The question is, what are you hungry for? Are you aware of the hunger in your life? What, is, what does that hunger look like in your work or in your career? If you could just get the promotion, or if you could at least just do better than the person next to you. What does that hunger look like in your family? If you could just prove your mom and dad wrong, or prove them right by your good behavior. Maybe earn their love, finally. And the crazy thing is, the wild thing is, this doesn't end after you move out of the house. We carry these narratives with us our entire life. Or if your children could just be a certain way. Or if you could just have different children. What's the hunger that you have in your life? The hunger to just be accepted. The hunger for justice. Notice, all of these are good things, but they're clues to our deeper hunger in life. Are you aware of the ways that the hungers in your life right now are driving all sorts of decisions and behaviors in your life? See, the gospel will slow you down in a world that's moving forward at light speed. It'll slow you down and say, are you aware of the, the deeper longing in your bones? and the effects that's having on your trajectory for life. And Jesus emphatically proclaims that underneath all of these hungers, underneath all this frantic and frenetic 
racing and achieving and striving, there's actually a deeper hunger. You want to be accepted? He says, you are a beloved child of God. You want success? He says, before you even thought about me, I wrote your name in heaven, and it will never go away. No one can take that from you. You pursue justice with your life. He says, I am the king of justice, and I care about the oppressed and the marginalized even more than you do, because I created them, and I know them, and I love them. There's a deeper longing that only he can fulfill. Jesus provides the bread. What would it look like for you to connect those deeper hungers in your life with letting Jesus into your life and letting him be the bread, provide the bread? Now, we're going to zoom out one click because now as we see him providing the bread, there's something else going on. There's something bigger going on than even that, as grand as that is. Because it mentions this is taking place at the time of the Passover. Remember, Passover was the season where the Jewish people would get together to remember that amazing moment when Moses went to Pharaoh, when the Jews were slaves in Egypt, in bondage for 400 years, and Moses goes and says, God says, let my people go. And Moses leads them out of slavery. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years before coming to the promised land, and they got hungry. And God provided Manna from heaven, bread from heaven. So overlay the fact that that is what's on everybody's mind as they gather together in this very moment. And here they are in the wilderness, hungry. And feeling the oppression of the Roman Empire, feeling the restlessness of a people that are losing their identity and their sense and their way. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus comes in the wilderness and provides bread. He says, you are remembering Moses, but Moses just pointed to me. Moses led you out of slavery into freedom. He battled the death of Pharaoh. I will take on even more sinister and dark enemies of sin and death itself. You want freedom? You're looking at him. Jesus provides the bread, the bread of freedom. But let's zoom out even more. As one friend would say, this, this view gets so high you could get a nosebleed. Let's zoom out even more. What's taking place right here? Because we're going through the sermon series on the signs of Jesus. And signs, the miracles, were always meant to point to something else. A sign is only as good as it can show you how to get somewhere else. What does this sign reveal? Someone says, well, it reveals Jesus' power. He can make bread enough for 5,000 men plus the women and children. That's amazing. It shows his power. But here's the thing. If he really wanted to show his power, there are other ways to do it. I mean, Jesus could construct a fireball right there and say, do you want to see power? Watch this. And hurl it at a tree and watch it incinerate into a billion pieces. Now you see power. Right? If Jesus wanted to, he could, fly, he could fly up into the air and do a few loops and start skywriting his name and go to the Colosseum and undo you know, all the system. He, if he wanted to show power, he would do that. But he chose this miracle to show who he is. Why? 
Consider this. The miracles show why Jesus came. He came to deal with suffering. When someone asks now, if God really is good, if God really does care about this world, then why is there suffering at all? And every other religion and philosophy has to say, I really don't know. Now, Christians also have to say, I'm really not actually sure. That's one of the great mysteries of life. So there's a humility there. But there are also some clues. Of the brokenness of this world is an ongoing chain reaction of the fallout of rebellion against God, wandering, the violence we do to each other and to ourselves. But it goes even further. And a Christian can say, I'm not exactly sure why there's suffering in this world, but I do know this. God stands opposed to it. And God is committed to healing it. God sees the suffering of this world and cares about it. And is doing something about it. I mean, look here. Every miracle is an assault on destruction and decay and devastation. The miracles we've looked at so far in this series. First, you have a young couple at their wedding at Cana in John chapter 2. They've run out of wine. Wine was the joy of the party. They're about to be shamed publicly because of bad hospitality, which really mattered in that, in that culture and many today. And Jesus comes and restores the joy and makes sure that they're not shamed. Takes the shame, gives the joy. What would it look like for Jesus to take the shame in your life? Or to restore joy. Next we see a royal official's son who is dying at home. And Jesus heals him from afar with just a word. An assault on death itself. Bringing this kid to restored life. Last week we saw a man who had been paralyzed by the pool for 38 years. Had lost hope. Hadn't even given an effort recently. Because like you and I would, he just gave up. And Jesus restores his broken body. Everywhere he goes. Now today, 5,000 plus men, women and children are hungry and he makes sure they don't starve in the wilderness. Plenty of food for the hungry. See, his miracles were not just raw displays of power. They were actually doing something. They were restoring this world. One person at a time. Sometimes 15,000 people at a time. And so when you zoom out and you look at the big story that scripture presents from the very beginning to the very end, you find in the beginning a good world. God blesses it and says, it is good. And very shortly thereafter, you find a world that's starting to decay as humans take matters into our own hands. Don't trust that God has our best interests at heart, so we're going to do it ourselves, and things unravel really quickly. But even then, and we're only in Genesis 3 at that point, third chapter of the entire Bible, God promises, I will do something about this. This is what they're talking about at the very end. When the people saw the signs he had done, they began to say, this indeed is the prophet who came into the world. And eventually they're going to say, this indeed is the Messiah. The people were waiting for God to come and do something about the brokenness of this world. The signs point to Jesus as the one who will heal everything.
new creation breaking forth in the midst of the old. Jesus provides the bread. But secondly, Jesus is the bread. He doesn't just give you something transactionally. Jesus, please give me my best life now. Like it was a pill he could hand you and then it happens. He says, the life is actually located in me. C.S. Lewis wrote something like, it's not as though joy and life is something that God could give you apart from himself. It exists within himself. When you receive God's life, you receive that joy and vitality. Jesus puts it this way. Because after this, this sign, the people are pressing him. Remember, it's at Passover. They're remembering the bread of life that God gave, remembering um, liberation from slavery. And then Jesus stands up after having given everybody all this bread. And he says in verse 35, which is not printed, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will never be hungry. And whoever comes to me will never thirst. When he says, I am the bread of life, that word life is really interesting. Because the English translation only has one word for life. Greek, the, the Greek in which it was originally written has two. Bios and zoe. And it's two different types of life. Bios means your biological functions are, are operating. You're breathing, you have, you have brain function, ele electronic function in your neural system, all of that. That's bios, that's alive. But that's not the word he uses. He uses the word zoe, which is a quality of life. Here's the difference. I took my son Levi to Six Flags Magic Mountain a couple months ago. We're, we're uh, roller coaster buddies. So we go up there once a year. We ride all the roller coasters. Again, we eat all the junk food. You know, I think there's a theme there. We can talk about it later. And on the way back down, we stop at whatever restaurant he wants to, and we have dinner before we get home. And we're, eating, we're in the middle of dinner, had just had all these amazing roller coaster experiences. He goes, Dad, this is living. <laughs> now, what did he mean there? He didn't mean, you know, Dad, 45 minutes ago, I didn't have brain function or heart function, and now I do. He didn't, Dad, this is not bios. This is Zoe. <laughs> we are living. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will have that kind of living, vitality, hope, resiliency. Life to, he later he calls it life to the fullest. See, following Jesus does not simply mean you say the right prayer and you do the right things and God will give you a seat on the plane to heaven so you can have eternal life. It means the eternal life that can never be stopped actually rushes forth into your life now. The Christian hope is not that you can barely hang on in this life for 80 years if you're so lucky before you go somewhere better while it all just burns. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That life is coming forth now. This is why the Apostle Paul, one of the first church planters, most influential Christians of all time, talks about a Christian has dual citizenship. You're a citizen of the country in which you have citizenship, but you're also a citizen of the kingdom of God. And you allow that citizenship to inform this one, not vice versa. You allow that life to come into your life. Now, this does not mean that to be a Christian means you will never have difficulties or problems. I hope you already know that. It does mean you have a new buoyancy and a new resiliency as you go through them. I was reading this week in one of my favorite books by Martin Luther King called Strength to Love. It's a collection of his sermons. And he talks about how 
um, when he had first flown from New York to London, it was a trip that back then had propeller planes. It took nine hours to get to London. But on the way back, the pilot announced over the intercom that it would take 12 hours, three additional hours. So when the pilot came through the cabin to greet everybody, I don't know if anybody remembers those days when the pilot would come through the cabin to greet everybody, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King asked him to explain the difference in time. And he simply explained that on the way to London, we have a really great tailwind that pushes the plane. And then on the way back, we have a great headwind that resists the plane. And that's why we have the extra time. And Dr. Martin Luther King, reflecting on this, wrote, At times in our lives, the tailwinds of joy, triumph, and fulfillment will favor us. And at times, the headwinds of disappointment, sorrow, and tragedy beat unrelentingly against us. Shall we permit adverse winds to overwhelm us as we journey across life's mighty Atlantic? Or will our inner spiritual engines sustain us in spite of the winds? Our refusal to be stopped, our courage to be, our determination to go on in spite of, reveal the divine image within us. The ability to be resilient and go on in spite of reveals the divine image within us. The person who has made this discovery knows that no burden can overwhelm them and no wind of adversity can blow their hope away. They can stand against anything that can happen to them. Do you have that kind of hope in your life? That kind of resiliency? It is offered to you and me right now. Now how do we get it? How do we access it? When you look at Jesus' life, Here's how he brought it to us. Just as this bread, as we come around this table and the sacrament of communion is taken, blessed, broken, and given. Just as Jesus fed the multitude, he took the bread and blessed it, broke it, and gave it. Jesus' life himself is taken, blessed, broken, and given to you and me. So maybe the hardest thing of all is to receive it. I think that's the first obstacle. Because we live in a society that prizes upward mobility, do-it-yourselfness, fake it till you make it. If you can't look good, at least don't look bad. And Jesus says, let's admit it. You're hungry. And that's okay. So you receive him, but you must digest him. Just as this bread will do no good to power your body for the rest of the day if you don't Chew it, digest it, let it become part of you as it's metabolized. He says, don't just look at me, don't just think about me, receive me, digest me into your life. Let me become a part of your life. This is why to become a Christian is not a one-time event. As many great theologians have said, to become a Christian, you repent, you turn toward him, and then you do it again every minute for the rest of your life, constantly digesting his love into your life. That's why this church is structured with plenty of meaningful contact points for you to receive him, digest him together. That's why we come around word as we're doing right now and sacrament. That's why we have community groups throughout the week. That's why we have a prayer group in the middle of Wednesday. None of this, I don't, I don't think you get the sense from this church that we think you're a better person if you show up and you're a worse person if you don't. None of it's busy work. They're all contact points to get around the means of grace to digest him into our lives more.
And just as eating a bunch of food without exercising is not very healthy for you, we digest him and then we put it into practice as we go forward. Being pressed outward in mission to serve all our neighbors as then we are, you are, taken, blessed, broken, and given as a gift to this world. Jesus provides the bread, Jesus is the bread, and then Jesus sends us out to be bread for a hungry world. Did you notice this? And you really kind of only notice it if you read this passage in concert with the other reports of this scene and the other Gospels. But in verse 11, something interesting happens. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, so that as much as they wanted, they had. It says, Jesus took the bread, blessed it, and Jesus distributed it. In the other accounts, it says, Jesus took the bread and blessed it, and then gave it to his disciples to distribute. Which one is it? Here's what I think. I think Jesus did not single-handedly go out and distribute bread to 15,000 people. I think Jesus did bless it, break it, give it to his friends so they can go and be a part of the miracle. And I actually don't think there's any, any friction between those two accounts. Here's what I think the writers were assuming. That whatever Jesus' friends were doing, Jesus was doing it himself. In other words, to be a Jesus follower to be connected to him, to draw this kind of life from him. When you go out into this world, it is not mere symbolism to say you are his very hands and feet, operating as the body of Christ in this world. You see this elsewhere. I'll give you one example. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, the apostle Paul is writing to this young church in Ephesus, which is nowhere near anywhere that Jesus traveled in his earthly life. But he says to this group of new Christians, Jesus came and preached peace to those of you who were far away, and he preached peace to those of you who were near. So the question is, when did Jesus go into Ephesus and preach peace to any of these people? And the answer is, whenever a Christian should, stood up to share the gospel in word and deed, it was as though Jesus himself were preaching. Do you hear the promise there? Talk about significance. Christian friends, wherever you go, you have the honor, the opportunity, and the responsibility to be the very presence of Christ. Do you hear the challenge? Do you hear the encouragement? Because he's not saying, hey, this is a really hard problem, I can't figure it out, go try, and if you do, I'll love you more. He's saying, I care about this world, and I love you, and I send you, and remember what he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will go with you. To be a Christian means to be taken, blessed, broken, and given, to receive the bread, and then to go out and be the bread for a hungry world. Now, here's what I love about this. John, the gospel writer, makes sure to capture it twice from two different voices just so that we don't miss it. You see it? Philip. So Jesus says to, to the disciples, hey, let's feed all these people. Philip, the, the bean counter, you know, he's going, okay, I'm carrying the one. We don't, we don't have enough bread to feed 15,000 people. In fact, he like does the, does the math. It would take six months' wages to feed enough people, you know, all these people here. The point is, we're not even close. And then Andrew goes off and fi finds this boy. 
And the boy has five barley loaves and two fish. And he comes and says, well, this boy has a little tiny bit. But it's nowhere near enough. I mean, his words were, but what are they among so many? And the point either way is, whether you feel like you have nothing or just a little tiny bit, is you don't have enough. Doesn't that just feel exposing to even be, like, what if, some, what, if, what if other people knew about you that underneath the really slick LinkedIn page, you actually feel like you don't have enough? Underneath your, you know, your car that's now four years old, you're really looking at the new one because it doesn't feel like enough. You look at your bank account, you have a bit of a retirement savings going, but it's not enough. It's not enough. And Jesus says, I know. But let's follow the disciples' example here. Let's follow this little boy's example here. And just the little bit that you have, trust him with it and see what he does with it. Or even Philip's example. If you feel like you've got nothing, just stick around Jesus. Say that to him. I feel like I've got nothing. I'm, I'm waiting expectantly for Jesus to do something that is fresh and new and unexpected. Because he is the bread. Where do you hope to see Jesus do something fresh and new and unexpected right now around you? What might your five barley loaves and two fish be? What, what do you contribute? When you go out these doors today, you will encounter people in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood that will never meet me and probably never set foot in this sanctuary. But you get to be bread for a hungry world where you go. What will that look like? So friends, let's admit our hunger and recognize that Jesus provides the bread. Let's admit our need and recognize that Jesus is the bread. And let's go out of here with our, all of our sensors on to note the hunger around us. A society that has never experienced as much affluence and comfort and a society that has never experienced as much isolation and depression. A hungry world. And let's go forward to be bread for a hungry world. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you for this moment. I thank you that you are the bread of life. And so now as we consider that, we receive you more and more into our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to admit and get in touch with our hunger and make space for you. As we prepare to come to this table where you promise to feed us and nourish us in this sacrament, we ask for you to fill us, to feed us, and to send us out to be bread for a hungry world. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.